Welcome to Real Food, Real Conversations with Sophia DeSantis, where we focus on finding our happy balance between salad and fries. Welcome back to the Real Food, Real Conversations podcast with me, Sophia DeSantis. This is episode 79, and I'm so excited to have my friend Whitney on today. We are going to be chatting about kids, which um, this is something I talk a ton about. I do talk about it, um, but I feel like I want to talk about it more. So um, I decided to have Whitney on so that we can chat about nutrition and kids, and there's so much taboo around this subject, I think, especially with the plant-based diet. So I'm excited to have an expert on today. Um, welcome, Whitney. Can you introduce yourself, tell people who you are, what you do? Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Sophie. It's great to chat with you today. Uh, my name is Whitney English. I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist, a certified personal trainer, and I'm the creator of two different websites, Whitney ERD, which is uh, really targeted towards uh, plant-based uh, preventative nutrition for adults, and then plant-based juniors, which I co-own and operate with another dietitian and mama. And that website and platform is dedicated to educating parents and other professionals on plant-based nutrition for kids. And we're an all-inclusive space. So we really welcome anybody who wants to get more plants on the plate from vegans to vegetarians, flexitarians. Um, we are there to, to help get your kids eat more, eating more plants. I love it. Um, because isn't, I mean, that's kind of the, the goal I think for everybody. I mean, I don't think anybody can argue that eating plants is, is, um, (laughs) bad for you. So the more exactly. plants, the better. <laughs> that's what we say. We say, you know what, if you're not ready to go plant-based, that's totally okay. It's not all or nothing. The benefits of eating plants are, are on a spectrum. So the, the more, the better and whatever dietary pattern you follow, there's one thing I think every diet agrees upon. And that's that fruits and vegetables are good for us. So let's get more of them on the plate. Totally. And especially when it comes to kids, I mean, I, I don't know about yours, but I know that, um, I feel like feeding kids in general can be such a challenge. And then you have to think in, about, you know, the nutritional needs of them. And I think most of us don't, you know, really focus on that, like too much as far as stressing about, are they getting all these details in, but like I've had an issue once come up with one of my kids in iron. And so when you do have something come up, it really does, you know, yeah. make you think about it, you know, and like, oh my gosh, are my kids getting what they need? You know, are they growing up to be healthy? And it's crazy. Totally. It can, it can be extremely overwhelming and very, very stressful for parents. You know, a lot of us, um, well, I think more and more these days, people are, are connecting how nutrition affects our overall health. And so they're, they're concerned about their own nutrition, but when you're, when you've got another life to worry about another life in your hands, it becomes, um, even more important and something that you want to focus on. So I, I completely understand, sympathize, empathize, cause I've been there, uh, what it's like trying to trying to figure out how to, how to best feed your babe. I mean, you bring up iron actually. Um, my son, Caleb, when he was about 11 months, we found out that he was low in iron and that was really 
really stressful on me, especially as a dietitian, who this is my job to make sure that he's meeting all of his nutrient needs. Um, but it can, these things can crop up for anyone. Again, no matter what dietary pattern you're following, iron deficiency is actually the most common nutrient deficiency for adults and children alike. And that's uh, again, whether you're omnivorous or whether you're following a plant-based diet, um, iron needs are very high for kids and, and very challenging to meet. Yeah. I mean, isn't it crazy how, I mean, and same with me. I mean, I, my kids, you know, ate so healthy and I um, made my own baby food and, and, mm -hmm. and it was about the same age, I think, um, for mine, maybe a little bit younger, but you, it almost feels like you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it feels like you failed your child. You're like, wait, I'm supposed to be an <laughs> expert in this. Why is this happening? And um, absolutely. It's, 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 it was so upsetting, you know, for, for me, especially, um, and I think what parents need to need to take into account is that everybody has such individualized differences. So even when you're following guidelines, there your children could still be at risk of nutrient deficiencies, and and you know it, it may happen. And the the most important thing is that you're just staying on top of their well visits, you're detecting these, and then you're correcting any any um, any issues that you're having. And all you can do as a parent is is fulfill fulfill your role. And that's, that's to provide nutritious foods, but it is up to your child, whether or not they're going, they're going to eat them. Um, totally. That's something. Ain't, yeah. That's a big, that the truth. <laughs> yeah. That's something we, we talk a lot about over at plant-based juniors is, um, you know, you can, you can only do, do so much. And, and it, that's something that can help uh, take a little bit of the the stress off of your plate too is knowing knowing your job as a parent. It's your job to make sure that you're providing nutritious foods, you're providing them at regular intervals. But it's your jo child's job to decide if they want to eat and how much they want to eat. You can't you can't force feed them. Um, and even if you <laughs> achieve that, that's not going to set them up for a lifelong positive relationship with food. Right. Exactly. Um, let me, let's back up just a little bit for those that, um, don't, that maybe by becoming here and have like, really just don't know what, what are some big, like things as far as kids and nutrition goes. And I know you talked a little bit about iron, but like, let's start from the beginning and maybe say, could you give us some, like the biggies, like obviously yeah. we all need a lot of everything, but <laughs> especially what it is we should focus on. Yeah. So in the, in the early years, um, the major focus is growth. So we're talking about physical growth and size, but we're also talking about growth of, um, important, uh, bodily systems, such as like the central nervous system and the brain, the brain grows more in the first, uh, two to three years of life than in your entire life. So we really need nutrients that, that support growth and development. So first of all, that would be the, the major macronutrients. So kids need calories. In general, they need a lot of calories to grow. Um, the main source being carbohydrates, but also that they need to be getting enough protein, um, aka the building blocks of life, and then they need to be getting enough fat. Um, again, specifically for growth of the body, but also for growth of the brain. The brain thrives on 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 fat, and it's really necessary in order in order to sell, to support that normal growth and development. So, making go ahead. <laughs> No, go ahead. I, oh, I was actually, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then the other part of the picture is, is, um, specific micronutrients that are really important for brain growth. Um, and those are iron. So we talked a little bit about iron. I'll dive in a, a little bit deeper for you, but, um, 
iron is probably the most critical nutrient need starting at about six months. So up until about six months of life, kids can get uh, pretty much everything that they need from, from breast milk or, or from formula. Uh, iron is accumulated in utero during pregnancy, but stores dwindle during the first six months of life. And breast milk is very low in iron. So at about six months, uh, babies no longer, uh, have their, their stores from, from birth and they aren't getting enough iron from breast milk. So that's the priority nutrient that parents need to be focusing on, um, from six to 12 months, uh, but really during all, all of child childhood, but needs really peak during that six to 12 month period to give you a, an idea, um, the, the recommended daily allowance for iron is 11 milligrams for babies at that age. And an adult male actually only needs eight milligrams. So a baby is supposed to be getting more iron than an, than adult male because needs are so high. And this is one reason, um, as we saw with both of our children, it, it's kids are at very high risk of iron deficiency there, during this age, especially if they're exclusively breastfed because they're not getting any iron from breast milk, whereas formula-fed babies will get all of the iron they need from formula. Um, so we actually really recommend including some fortified products during, during this period. Uh, fortified baby cereal has gotten a bad rap in recent years for, for various reasons, but something like an organic oat-based iron fortified cereal is a really excellent food, uh, first food for babies because it can help to meet those iron needs. And it's really essentially just, um, oats with, with some iron added in there. So I highly recommend that. Um, I wasn't providing that not regularly for my son, um, when he was uh, a baby, but I did for my daughter and she was also exclusively breastfed and she recently had her iron levels checked and they were right on point. So, um, I encourage parents, especially those again, that are, that are exclusively breastfeeding to, to consider that, or to be very hyper-focused on making sure that all of the first foods they're providing include iron. And again, this is because iron is so important for brain development. It's also um, necessary for red blood cells, which are uh, also increasing at a rapid rate because of the rapid rate of, of bodily growth and size during this period of time. Um, a few other priority brain nutrients are things like choline, um, which is really important for uh, retinal development and brain development. And then DHA, which is an omega-3 fatty acid that's primarily found in seafood, uh, but it can also be found or it's its original source is actually microalgae. So fish consume microalgae and they build up DHA in their tissues. So either I recommend that kids are receiving fish or receiving an algae oil-based supplement starting about 12 months. Awesome. <laughs> Sounds I mean, a lot of information. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but um, I love it. Um, I actually the DHA thing, we, um, I actually had a recent guest on, uh, a dietitian talk about fat. Um, I have actually an episode on every macronutrient because of the, mm. um, I like to highlight them because of the fear that so many people have of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's so funny. It's like every, for every dietary pattern, there's some macronutrient. It seems like that, that becomes demonized when, when really oh, totally. the, the message should be, these are, these are vital, essential nutrients for a reason. Yes. We need all of yes. them. Totally. <laughs> we and don't want to cut out any of them. <laughs> right. And that's why I had a, um, I have a, actually, you know, an episode dedicated to each because we have such an obsession with protein yet we demonize like 
the fat and the carbs. And mm-hmm. um, like we see here that, you know, our body, you know, we're the same human we were when we were a baby, we have different, you know, our needs fluctuate, but the, the point is that our body needs all these things to grow and to develop. And as adults, you know, we still need these things just because we're developed doesn't mean we don't need them. It's like saying like, you know, if you put gas in a car, you know, that you'll, it never needs gas again, which is not true. And even with electric vehicles, it needs to be recharged. Um, so absolutely, I, the whole fat that, uh, microalgae was actually with it. You mentioned that I did some, when I was writing that post, I did some research in it and yeah, I mean, fish has DHA because it actually eats that microalgae. So people that say like, oh, you know, there's no, you know, source of it. It's like, well, no, I mean, microalgae, <laughs> you know, either get the supplement or yeah, your family. Yeah, it's like interesting. It. Plant-based diets do get criticized for supplementation a lot, but when we break it down and look at these individual nutrients and where they're really from, we see that one, all diets are supplemented in one way or another, even, right. you know, omnivorous diets, milk is supplemented with vitamin D it's supplemented with vitamin exactly. A iodine ends up in, in milk because of the way that dairy is processed and the cleaning solutions that are used. So it's, it, it shouldn't be demonized. We should, we should break it down and understand what these nutrients do. And, and as long as we're getting them from a good source, it, it doesn't really matter exactly where they're derived from. And right. again, if we actually look at it, fish is the middleman when it comes to DHA. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> fish, it's, yeah. Just like us fish, fish accumulated in their tissues. And so, um, just to ex- expand on it, maybe you already covered this, but we do have the ability to make DHA in our body from another omega-3 fatty acid, alpha-linolenic acid, ALA, which is found in plant foods. Um, but the conversion rate is, is pretty low. And because needs are so high during pregnancy and lactation and early childhood, that's why we suggest, um, that plant-based diet, uh, plant-based diet or supplement just to kind of fill that gap between what our bodies can make and, and the high needs during this period. Yes, totally. Um, that's great. I love that. Um, and it's just informative. I think a lot of people just don't understand, you know, these things, um, they just yeah. listen to what, they heard online or whatever. <laughs> and rightfully um, so these are complicated issues and we've got a lot of people saying a lot of different things. So I understand how people get confused. Totally. I mean, especially online. I mean, it's, um, there's so much confusion. There's so much um, wrong information, which is actually why originally I started this podcast because I just, I couldn't weed through nor be a voice online. It just was overwhelming to me with the, you know, especially on Instagram, mm-hmm. <laughs> the amount of misinformation on there. And so I really wanted this podcast so that I could bring experts on to give real information and not just stuff that's been, um, you know, tainted by diet culture or certain yeah. diets or, you know, certain people. Cause I just like, we talked about already, you know, we don't believe a one size fits all. We don't believe it's a, it's a, it's a spectrum. It's a continuum and we're mm-hmm. all very different. So um, well, it's great that people have an evidence-based source to go to. <laughs> and I'm um, speaking of misconceptions. Um, let's talk about plant-based diet with children. I mean, I know that it's such a big thing out there like, oh, you know, you're forcing your kid to eat a certain way. You're depriving them of nutrients. Um, can children eat a plant-based diet? You know, those parents perhaps that choose to be hundred percent plant-based with their children, is it possible to thrive and grow? 
Yeah. There's, there's so many myths and misconceptions surrounding plant-based diets for kids. Uh, first of all, I'll just say that all of the major health organizations in, in the United States and the majority um, globally say that a plant-based diet is not only um, nutritionally adequate, but likely beneficial for kids. And so this includes the American Academy of Pediatrics, um, the World Health Organization, the uh, Canadian Pediatric Society, the Nutrition uh, Academy of Nutrition Dietetics, um, and this is all provided that the diet is appropriately planned. So that's the key word there. Um, whenever we hear headlines about um, a plant-based child being malnourished, it's all in cases where the diet was not appropriately planned or really um, where the parents were being actually downright negligent. Um, so appropriately planned diets for plant-based kids are, are completely safe. And what the research shows is that it might reduce the risk of certain chronic diseases and set kids up for a, a really positive relationship with food. So some of the things that we see are that while plant-based kids uh, grow on average to be normal height and weight, so they're falling between the 25th and the 75th percentiles, on average, they tend to weigh a little bit less than their omnivorous peers and have a lower BMI. So we see lower rates of obesity and overweight in, in plant-based kids. Now this could um, potentially, again, set them up for a uh, reduced risk of chronic diseases later in life. And given the fact that, that we're seeing chronic disease rates starting to rise in children, um, type two diabetes, for example, which was always thought to be a, an affliction um, that affected people later in life and adulthood, we're seeing in children as young as 10 years of age now. Um, so if we can get kids eating right, right from the start, that could be a huge, huge benefit personally and, and globally. Um, we also see that plant-based kids, not so surprisingly, have a higher intake of things like fruits and vegetables and fiber. Um, and when we consider this, the statistics that about 90% of kids aren't eating the recommended amount of fiber, fruits, or vegetables, again, this is, this is a huge, a huge positive, um, that hopefully will then lead them, uh, to be eating these foods more regularly later in life as well. Uh, the fiber intake also, uh, has shown in some, some research studies to produce a more favorable microbiome, um, which can, uh, have a two-pronged effect. One, it can be helpful for kids' digestion. And a lot of kids um, face things like constipation and, um, and, and GI troubles early in life, but it can also then help set them up for a reduced rate, again, of chronic disease later in life. We're seeing more and more about um, the connection between uh, the bugs in our gut and the beneficial uh, compounds that they produce, like short-chain fatty acids and how those can relate to other conditions um, later in life. So the, the benefits really are, are, diverse and, um, we're learning more and more about them every day. And I, um, love the whole thing about the microbiome because I actually do have a, um, another episode all about the microbiome and, um, another episode all about food diversity and, and the connections. And I think that in the coming years, we're going to see such a big connection between microbiome and so many different, not only chronic diseases, but also mental health. Um, yes. there's a big connection between anxiety, depression, and GI troubles. And, mm -hmm. um, I mean, I am a prime example. I have to tell you, like I went through early onset menopause, um, when I was in around 39, 40 is when I kind of, I was, 
had my third child at 38. He was my little oops baby. And <laughs> I think that we thought that my um, hormonal changes had to do with postpartum. Um, mm-hmm. When in fact, we actually now looking back, think that it was the beginning of um, perimenopause. And I quickly moved from perimenopause to actually postmenopause, like much faster than a normal human. And so my body went through some crazy stuff and I had such extreme anxiety. I had to go on meds for a short time. And then quickly thereafter, I realized, um, started seeing an, a naturopathic uh, medical doctor and she took me off of gluten and it's amazing how many things disappeared, um, mm. with myself, you know, included like just, it's just insane. Like my anxiety went down, my allergies, my seasonal allergies disappeared. I haven't been on meds in nine months for them. And I used to take at least one to two meds a day. Um, wow my yeah, digestive I, issues. It's crazy. Yeah. I always tell people we're really at the tip of the iceberg and really understanding, um, how the microbiome interacts with our overall health, but also our, yes. our cognition and mood disorders. And yeah. it's, it's a fascinating topic. Um, but to, to simplify it as much as possible with what we know right now is, the more fiber, the better, <laughs> the more you can yep. feed, feed these bugs, the, the, the food, which is, um, uh, these prebiotics, AKA fiber, the more than you can help the beneficial bacteria grow and, and produce widespread, widespread benefits for your overall right. health. And it's crazy how, like what you said about kids and constipation and GI troubles, um, my oldest, um, when he was in preschool, I had the preschool when he started contact me and say, Oh, I think he has a little bug, you know, his, his stools are pretty loose and, mm. um, just, you know, eh, we, we probably should watch that. And I was like, well, no, actually, <laughs> um, that's normal <laughs> yeah. to have loose stools as like children that actually <laughs> eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. The problem is not my child. The problem is the fact that all the other kids you see using the restroom, if they even do at school they're constipated. So. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, you're used to the majority of kids who aren't getting the recommended amount of fiber and whose yeah. GI tracks are off. Absolutely. I mean, personally, um, I, I had GI issues since I was very young, had like IBS and, and GERD, which is, um, acid reflux, uh, disorder. And it wasn't until I went plant-based, uh, predominantly plant-based about five years ago that all of these things just kind of, I, I, again, I hate to, I hate to share anecdotes as, as the only evidence of these benefits, yes, but right. it kind of magically disappeared. And I didn't really yeah. realize it at the time because that wasn't the reason I went plant-based, but uh, about three years into my journey, I kind of one day it just hit me and I said, Hey, I, I haven't been feeling bad all the time anymore. And, you know, I, I had wanted to wean off of my, um, proton pump inhibitors, which is the, the medication for acid reflux. And I, I had tried many times over the years to wean off and it, and it was just too difficult because it was too painful. And, um, at this time I was able to wean off and I haven't gone back on the back on them since. And I said, you know, what was, what was the catalyst for all this? And I looked back and I said, this coincided with when I started eating a lot more plants, Um, so I, I think I really kind of re revamped, rejuvenated my microbiome and that's, that's likely why I'm right. And, and as you said, better shape today, (laughs) totally. And these are just stories, you know, both, you know, experiences and it's not necessarily, you know, a, a peer reviewed periodical study, you know, but it, again, there's, there's so many more people that as the evidence comes out that supports, you know, this evidence Mm -hmm. that it is, you know, it, and some people may eat a plant-based diet and still need medication. And it's just, we're all different. Yes. However, um, 
if you know, it can be so helpful. And, and there, there's recent research that just came out too, that I don't, I forget, I can't remember where it came from, but that did um, show that the earlier you teach kids about, you know, wholesome, nutritious food, the earlier that they start, it, it is affecting their um, adulthood with chronic diseases, um, cancer, all these sorts of things. And it just, this big body of evidence just came out about that. So, you know, making sure that kids know um, and are educated. And I think part of it, like you said, it's, it's the education. People just don't know. They don't yeah. understand. So getting yeah. it out there. I mean, the, the, the brain and, and our preferences and everything are so malleable early in life. And, um, you know, we talk a lot about uh, flavor, flavor preference development and how yeah. There's this kind of window of opportunity from during that six to 12 month range when kids are, are a lot more accepting of, of new and diverse flavors and flavors that they're actually biologically programmed to dislike. So if we can really teach kids at this, at this vital juncture, um, to, to like these foods and to be familiarized with them, there's a much greater likelihood that they'll, that they'll eat them and enjoy them later in life. And like you said, the, the consumption of those foods is, is associated associated we know in kids and adults with lower rates of chronic disease. So it all goes hand in hand and it, it makes sense. Totally. Um, let's talk a little bit um, now that you just mentioned the flavor thing, um, just little like things that we might want to have like in our, in the back of our head. I know um, for one thing, when we talked about iron, um, my journey with the iron with my, with my baby was a little different is I, he was not breastfed. Um, I actually didn't really produce much milk. So my first child just had colostrum and that was it. The second mm. one had a tiny bit, but, um, not much. And then the third had a little bit more. I just, my mom didn't produce milk. It was what it was. So they were formula yeah. fed. Um, and I also at the time, like he was eating baby cereal. So I couldn't, I was so confused as to the situation. Well, um, what happened is much like me, I, I had a hard time processing iron a lot of my life as well. Mm. And, and ironically, I, my iron levels actually stabilized once I went plant-based, which is so crazy. Um, <laughs> but when I was, you know, ate a lot of meat, I, I had major issues, but, um, my personal doctor is plant-based and she was like, Oh, you know, it's probably, is just that he's not, um, he needs more, um, it, iron needs to be paired. Mm -hmm. Um, with vitamin C. Yeah. Yeah. To, yeah. So to be absorbed. And so that was my issue for him. Ah, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that, and that, that's something important to, to consider. And there's several considerations when you, when you go onto a plant-based diet is that while plants are very rich in iron. And in fact, when we look at, um, studies of iron consumption, we often see that plant-based dieters actually eat, take in more iron than, than omnivores. The iron that's found in plants is, is often in a different form or there's actually, it's, it's called non-heme iron. Um, and so non-heme iron is found in both plants and animals, but heme iron which is more bioavailable than non-heme iron is only found in animal in animal foods. So with non-heme iron, in order to increase its bioavailability, like you just said, we need to pair it with um, absorption enhancers such as vitamin C. So if you're eating a plant-based diet and you may be getting a lot of iron, if you're not pairing it with an absorption um, enhancer like vitamin C, you may not be absorbing all that iron. And that's often how we see um, uh even higher rates of iron deficiency in, in underdeveloped countries, because while they are, yes. do tend to eat 
a lot of foods that are high in iron, like legumes and, and grains, they often aren't getting that vitamin C um, to unlock the bio bioavailability. Right. And that's, um, it's actually interesting. Cause my doctor uh, was like, well, we need to give him a supplement. It's, you know, he's borderline um, uh, anemic, blah, blah, blah. And I, he had some GI issues as far as like, he was very sensitive. And so I'm like, no, I really don't want to give him a supplement because that's just going to make that part worse. Mm-hmm. So I, did a trial of, um, my personal doctor. I had seen her shortly after she goes, why don't you just try pairing the baby cereal with some orange juice? Um, and so I did. And within two weeks, his iron went back to normal. That's awesome. Yeah. What a great story. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of, um, once, once I had, we had diagnosed the issue with, with Caleb. Um, and I started diligently giving him the baby cereal every day. I would mix a little bit of baby cereal with a little bit of regular oatmeal to get him some texture in there. I would put a little bit of orange juice, um, and a little bit of breast milk for flavor, for flavor. It was like such a, such a concoction, Yes, (laughs) but he loved it. And yeah. And you know, he, he ate it his iron levels. I did give some supplementation initially, but then once they got back up, we just went just to the baby cereal with that food. And, um, eventually I think like when he was about one and a half, we didn't even have to do the baby cereal anymore. And we haven't had any issues ever since, but yeah, that's a, that's a very important piece of the puzzle. And, and the thing is to every kid is different. I I thought before you revealed that, that it was going to be, um, some genetic component there. There are some people that also just don't don't absorb iron for whatever reason, because of genetics. Um, and actually everyone's uh, iron absorption, um, amounts at any given time, vary based on your current iron status. So, so iron is a really complex, complex topic and kids susceptibility to iron deficiency, um, is also going to be based on, on a variety of factors, things like, um, uh, if they had delayed cord clamping, how quickly they grew as a baby, because babies that grow really quickly um, will deplete their iron stores even sooner. Um, if they have, if they do have any type of GI issue, uh, like microscopic tears in the intestine, which sounds a lot scarier than it is, um, they could be losing uh, microscopic amounts of blood and hence therefore iron that way as well. So The takeaway is provide iron and make sure you're attending your well visits so that uh, you get uh, iron testing somewhere between nine and 12 months. Crazy. That's nice. Um, So then also we talked a little bit already about force feeding children and how we cannot do that. So all you can do, you know, (laughs) is, you know, just do the best you can as a mom. And, you know, I, I know for sure, like one thing that I've talked a lot about on here too, is just the uh, relationship with food that you're establishing with your kids. And if you have all this emotion and stress around food, trying to force feed your children, you're actually, you know, making the, the problem worse. Yeah. Yeah. So what the research really shows is that, um, whatever pressure you're putting on your child, whether positive or negative, it's often going to backfire. So if you're pressuring your child to eat food or eat certain types of food, the reverse often happens. They they don't eat. Um, So whether this is you're trying to get your kid to eat vegetables or or it's a parent that's concerned about their child's growth and they just want them to eat at all, whenever they pressure the the children typically eat less. And like I said, the reverse is true as well. So for perhaps parents that are concerned with older kids about eating too much sweets, or um, if they're concerned about weight gain and they try to restrict children, 
we see the opposite happen. We see kids end up Mm -hmm. eating more. They end up eating the foods that you're trying to keep them away from. So in order to build a positive relationship with food, again, we, we really want to see parents focusing on their roles. So this is actually called the division of responsibility. Um, and it, it's a, a, a construct that, that was created by a dietitian named Ellen Satter. Um, and as I mentioned before in the podcast, it's the parent's role and responsibility to provide food. And it's the child's role to decide whether or not to eat it. And by doing this and understanding your role, it takes the pressure off of feeding both the pressure from the parent who feels like they're doing something wrong if their child's not eating. And also the child, the pressure off the child who, um, is, is feeling like their parents trying to impose these food rules on them when kids are innately, uh, born knowing how to eat and knowing how to detect their own hunger and fullness levels. And the the key to having a positive relationship with food in the long run is to really be able to self-regulate our intake based on how we feel and not based on food rules. So if we're putting pressure on a child and trying to tell them when to eat and, and, or not when to eat, but what to eat and how to eat and how much to eat, those that's imposing outside rules on them and not letting them dictate and, and self-regulate their own intake. And in the long run, that means that they, as future adults, won't be able to do that, won't be able to connect with their own hunger and fullness cues. So it's really the parent's job to kind of step aside, to provide boundaries and framework for a nutritious diet and then, and then let their children lead the way. And sometimes that means that your kid is not going to touch any of their veggies at a meal. Sometimes they're not going to touch any of their vegetables for, for multiple meals for years. But if you want them to eventually have a positive relationship with food in the long run, um, you have to kind of set your worries and your anxiety aside and, and let them do, do their job. Absolutely. I mean, I fully, um, I fully believe that. And I fully do think that it does cause you know, it can cause eating disorders later. It can cause, you know, attaching these certain emotions to food, which can cause emotional eating and all these kinds of things. So, you know, I have found too, that like, just by simply putting a new vegetable on the table and just putting it there and and modeling eating Mm -hmm. it and modeling, talking about it, like, oh, I love the way I cooked this today. I roasted it and it makes it so yummy. And, and just putting it there and slowly introducing kids to things instead of making it a fight and Plus it makes mealtime so much better when you're not fighting and stressed. (laughs) Absolutely. We've talked about this a lot in here is like stress and emotions around food can have a huge impact on, on our feelings about them. So if, if your kids are experiencing a lot of negativity and a lot of pressure and anxiety from their parents regarding certain foods, they're going to feel all of that. They're going to internalize it and they're not going to have a positive association with whatever that food is. So while you may succeed in getting them to take a bite or eat some of their broccoli at one meal in the long run, if they felt uh, pressured into it, if they felt negative emotions on your part and about the whole experience, when you're not around, they're not going to want to eat that food. They're going to feel um, bad feelings towards that food. So doing your job by role modeling, that's a huge part of, of promoting adventurous eating and also really just providing that exposure. So putting the food on their plate, even if you know, they're not going to eat it. Um, My son has not touched broccoli on its own. um, Gosh, in probably like a year and a half, two years now, but we eat broccoli 
likely once or twice a week. So it's on his plate every night. He sees it. He smells it. He feels it sometimes. Um, and one day I'm hoping he'll come back to it <laughs> yeah. in, in the meantime, it's still going to be there so that he can, he can still familiarize himself. It'll still be a, a, a regular part of his environment. Well, and, or not, I mean, kids also are allowed to have preferences. That's the thing I think people forget is that, you know, they're, they're humans, like they can have preferences. There are certain things that, you know, I know one of my sons hates peppers and I don't think he ever will like them. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I do not like beets. Um, I, I, it just, there's, it's okay for us to um, continue to offer. Um, Cause it does take a lot of, you know, taste tests for, a ch- for a child to decide if they like it or not. But in the end, um, if there's something your child really is like, I just don't really like that. Totally. You know? Totally. And that's a good perspective to have in a lot of aspects of feeding is that think about how that relates to you as an adult. Um, we just posted on plant-based juniors today about how adding a little bit of salt or plant-based butter or ketchup to different foods, while they're not the most nutritious additions, these flavor enhancers could bridge the gap between foods that kids won't touch and foods that they might give a try and might eventually like. And when you step back and you think about it, you go, do I, as an adult, eat any vegetables without a little bit of, of, of fat, whether that's from some olive oil or a plant-based butter or a tiny sprinkle of salt? No, that's how I eat food. So why would I be expecting my child to eat a bland, um, life right. piece of piece of greens. Now this is a little different for our really young kids. We do want to minimize, uh, exposure to salt and sugar, but, um, it, it just makes sense when you think about it that way is if we get too hyper-focused on, on nutrition with kids, then we're not really thinking about the practicality and r- real life scenario of how foods are actually enjoyed. Exactly. Exactly. Um, well, and like you said earlier too, is, is you want to, as they're young, building that flavor profile is so important because it introduces them to all these different flavors that, um, perhaps, you know, they, they wouldn't have been introduced because so much of kid food is so, or labeled quote unquote Mm -hmm. kid food is so bland and, um, introducing them to all the things helps give them almost like this base building blocks for when, as they continue to make choices and try different things, um, Yes. The best thing you can do for your, for your baby starting at right, right at six months is give them as many flavor and texture and all of the different sensory experiences with food that you can, um, you know, we need to get rid of the whole old school idea of introducing one food at a time by itself, um, in a, in a single, flavor and texture profile that that's absolutely the opposite of how to promote adventurous eating. So whether you do purees or you do baby led weaning, there's so many different ways to give kids an enriched, um, sensory experience with foods right from the start. And really the diversity of the, of the diet is, is paramount at that time. Totally. Um, well, this was great. I mean, anything else before we, you know, sign off, there's so much great information here. Um, so appreciate. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, um, my, my book, the plant-based baby and toddler just came out in May and we cover all of these issues super in depth, um, from picky eating to flavor exposures, basically starting from nutrition at baby's birth all the way through the first few years of life. So if any of these topics piqued your interest, I 
recommend you check that out, or um, you can follow me at Plant Based Juniors um, for lots of free free content and recipes and information on these awesome. topics. Well, I will link the book in the write up so they can um, maybe you can send me a link after um, to where you want it linked, and then um, I can put it in the in the post so people can have a direct link to your book. Perfect. Well, thank you awesome. so much, Sophia. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you to everybody here listening. Um, if you love the podcast, I'd so appreciate a rate and review because it helps me get amazing experts on to give you guys um, information you can count on. Um, but I appreciate you all. And thank you so much, Whitney. And um, we'll all chat soon. <laughs>